The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. I'm Diane Ray and welcome back to A Seeker's Guide to the Parliament of World Religions. I checked my handy Parliament of the World Religions app that I had downloaded to my phone to help me keep track of all the events. There were speakers and workshops every hour, and the next thing I wanted to do was attend the pagan worship service. As I started to head out of the exhibition hall, I passed a booth with a beautiful arrangement of teacups and looked up to see a woman getting ready for a tea ceremony representing the Buddhist Foguang Shuan Monastery based in Taiwan. I couldn't walk by without stopping in for some tea. I thought it would have been rude. Uh, I'm Venerable Miao Shi. I'm based in Los Angeles uh, with our publishing branch, uh, Buddhist Publications. Uh, the name of our order is Foguang Shan Monastery, which is based in uh, Taiwan, in southern Taiwan. And what is your mission here at the conference? Well, we, of course, we like to share our teachings, we like to share our publications, and right here, actually, we have a tea meditation set up. Uh, we already did two sessions, and on the weekends, we have two, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, and we also would uh, introduce a good book that we like to share with uh, anyone who's interested. And tell me a little bit about the book. This is something that you wrote? No, uh, the books are mostly by uh, our teacher, our master, Venerable Master Sing Yun. He's 92 years old now, and he, he's, he's, he, tr- he used to travel a lot. He used to travel all over the world, but now, of course, it's because of his old age, he's mainly stationed in Taiwan. And, and this is your teacher that you've studied with? Yes. Uh, well, well, what we advocate is what we call ha- uh, humanistic Buddhism. It's, it's actually Mahayana Buddhism. It's, the emphasis is like on uh, Buddhism actually is for people, for humans, for this human world, for this human life. Because there are a lot of misconceptions that Buddhism is detached from life. Buddhism is like an escape from the world, which is not true. Buddhism is something that can help us to live our life easier, happier. It's like enhancing the quality of life for us. Thank you for saying that because people have um, had that misconception and have even said that Buddhism is more a philosophy than uh, than a, a religion. What do you think about that? Well, the well, that's the beauty of Buddhism, actually. I mean, uh, you, you may be practicing Buddhism without even knowing it. I mean, we, we talk about compassion. Actually, compassion and wisdom are the two pillars of, of Buddhism. And it's a philosophy for many people because uh, they, they think, oh, it's great, this is so cool, you know. Uh, but, but it can be a faith. It's also a religion, a faith, a practice. Uh, we, we would like, like to think of it as a practice to live a better life. And how long have you been with the order that you're with now? Oh, I would say it's over a quarter of a century now. (laughs) Yes. And you had mentioned the tea ceremony. Can you tell me a little bit about what happens here? There's a a beautiful tea set up here with cups and everything. Um, And this this looks really, really amazing. Well, we will start the tea ceremony with a book. It's like, you know, setting the stage, share some of the teachings. It's very, very basic stuff that we kind of get you interested maybe and then we go into the tea uh, with the tea it's well it's, a, it's it can be very meditative and calming 
and you have a good taste of good tea as well and uh, you can see how tea is being brewed it's a, it's a tea ceremony by itself and then at the end we can kind of calm ourselves down and sit for a moment and reflect you can reflect on the tea you can reflect on you know what's been said about the book and then you can have Q&A afterwards yeah, so it's like maybe a 20 minute session in general yeah and that's something we don't do enough of is take a minute and, and rest and reflect. And um, just one last thing, can you tell me, what do you hope uh, to accomplish here at the Parliament? What is the message that you'd like to share? Well, of course, we, we want to share with everyone the teachings of the Buddha, the spirituality, and I think uh, a small peace and friendship with all the faith groups. That's perfect. Thank you so much. I was running a little late, but I made it in time to meet my friend Jill at the Pagan Worship. I wasn't sure what to expect, but I was open and curious. I've always been fascinated with paganism, and I realized many of the things we love about holidays like Christmas trees, Easter eggs, and Halloween jack-o'-lanterns all have their roots in pagan traditions and practices. Paganism, quite simply, is nature worship. It's also called the old religion, earth-centered spirituality, and nature-based religion. Examples of pagan traditions today include Wicca, Druidry, Norse heathen, indigenous African and Afro-Caribbean traditions, and other Earth-centered paths. The service I went to was given by Selena Fox and the Circle Sanctuary community. The people at the worship were an eclectic mix of young and old, all races and genders, and sexual expression from all around the world. Again, all were welcome, and we shared in a chant for healing and wellness for planet Earth. After the worship service, I wanted to find out what draws people to this path. I headed to the Earth Spirit Community booth and spoke to Chris LaFond about what draws him to an Earth-centered religion. I'm here at the Parliament of World Religions at the Earth Spirit Community, honoring the Earth as sacred. And I wanted to find out more about pagan beliefs, the pagan movement. So I figured I'd come over here and see what was going on. So I am talking with Chris LaFond. And what's your connection with Earth Spirit? Tell me a little bit about what you guys do here. Well, I've been a member of Earth Spirit for about 30 years. Uh, Earth Spirit has been around for about 40. Um, Earth Spirit is a... uh, it's a nonprofit educational organization dedicated to the um, preservation and development of um, earth-centered spirituality, community, and culture, primarily based in the indigenous traditions of Europe, of old Europe. So um, as an organization, we are very much of an umbrella type of organization where our members don't subscribe or have to subscribe to any particular set of beliefs or practices, but many people find a home in Earth Spirit, uh, people who are who feel that they can connect to the Earth in the way that, that feels right to them. And what would you say are some of the misconceptions when people hear the word pagan that you'd like to dispel? Um... We have a limited amount of time, right? <laughs> um, the biggest ones, I guess. Well, you know, I think probably the biggest ones. I don't hear them so much anymore because I tend to live among people and in a part of Western Massachusetts that is very pagan friendly. But I think the idea that pagans are against anything. You know, we're not, we're not, 
we don't have those characteristics. I'm not even going to name many of them, but we don't have those negative characteristics that many people would ascribe to pagans and witches and so forth. You know, um, we don't wish harm upon other people. Uh, we try to live very close to the land. I mean, you know, we're human beings like everybody else, so we have the good and the bad, and sometimes the ugly, but sometimes the beautiful, um, just like everybody else. We don't have any particular group um, drive to, you know, to do anything other than to make the earth uh, as good a place as it can be um, for its own sake. So would you say service is a, a big part of um, uh, kind of the, the beliefs? Like, do you, do you believe in, you know, giving back, helping others? Is, is that an important part? For Earth Spirit, it certainly is. Um, and I would even say that we don't necessarily consider giving back because we're not giving back. In a sense, we're giving to ourselves. You know, um, you know uh, every time we lose a species, we impoverish ourselves. Every time we pollute something, we impoverish ourselves. Even if we don't feel it personally, even if we don't feel it acutely, um, our peoples, we've impoverished our people. I think that the, I believe that the earth will survive whether we as humans are here or not. Uh, it would change if, if it's transformation, if we don't survive as humans because we put an end to ourselves, then we'll, we clearly will have affected the earth. But the earth will go on in some form or another. It has gone through disasters before. Um, the sad part is that as humans, we don't realize that more than destroying the earth, we're really destroying our own place on the earth, as well as all sorts of other creatures. So yeah, Earth Spirit is very well, very much involved in um, the preservation. You know, I, you know, because we're involved in the preservation and development of Earth-centered spirituality, we are very much involved in the the preservation of all parts of the earth itself. Uh, we have members who have gone out to Standing Rock. You know, we have members who have been involved in the Parliament of the World's Religion since the first modern one in 1993. Um, you know, we have other pagans. You know, we have we've had three pagans on the board of the Parliament of World's Religions. So our interests are not turned just in on ourselves. They're definitely turned, you know, outward toward other people, toward other species, toward the earth. We we spend a lot of effort, you know. Um, uh, trying to take care of the earth and again not as something apart from ourselves we have uh, at our events uh, and gatherings and retreats we often have um, we often have moments where we go and we try to pull invasive species and plant other things in their place you know we we try to be really careful about all the resources that we use we try to be public and that's one of the reasons that we're here at, at the parliament about who we are and what we stand for my own Pagan spirituality has, has brought me to, you know, raising some of my own animals for meat, um, you know, giving them the absolute best life they can, except for those last five minutes, you know, but not having our animals, you know, caged for their whole lives. Uh, it has led other members in our community to vegetarianism, you know, so there's a lot of room here and, you know, we... We encourage people to pursue these spiritual inquiries and these spiritual uh, motivations in any way that makes sense for them, um, but they all find a home in Earth Spirit. Most of us who are here today, most of the people in our organization came from a different uh, spiritual background as children because this wasn't available to us 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. 
um, there's a one of our members is doing a workshop I think on Monday or Tuesday about what happens with the next generations children who are, ra are raised as pagans in pagan communities um, and we have that we it's it's amazing that we have that as a thing to consider at this point you know um, but I think that I mean, we don't proselytize. We don't ask people to join us, except as a, you know members who come to our to our events and gatherings and retreats might go home and say to their friends, "Hey, you got to come check this out." And some people will float in, and some people will float out. You know, um, some of us will stay for many years. Some of us will find other groups and organizations. Um, But whatever whatever it is, we we just want people to do the work. We want people to be aware of these issues. You know, we're not here thinking that anybody should do exactly what we do. We're here because other people's spiritual paths have led them uh, to a point where they feel the need to do something about the situation. And that doesn't mean we have to believe exactly the same thing. It doesn't mean that we have to believe that we're even on the same path spiritually. It doesn't mean that we all have to believe that we're on, you know, different paths that lead to the same God. For us, the only important part of all this is that we are here right now on the earth. We are part of the earth, you know, and so as the more we can do to turn young people on to sustainability issues, um, the better. Whether or not they join us or a different pagan organization, whether or not they find that within their own religious traditions, um, that's, not, that's not a real important factor for us, uh, as long as those religions allow them to do that. Well, I thank you so much for taking this time and educating me about pagans, what pagans are doing today, and where they're going in the future. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I really liked spending time with the pagans. I noticed at the sacred music concert later that night, the Circle Sanctuary pagans were right up front dancing to the music and spinning like tops in total abandon. They know how to have fun. I love that they tend to find their inspiration in the earth in the seasons, solstices, and full moons. Not far from the Earth Spirit community booth, there was a display of beautiful, brightly colored canvas paintings in a booth that said, Ayahuasca Spiritual Traditions. Ayahuasca, like psilocybin mushrooms or peyote, is considered an entheogen, or a class of psychoactive substances like LSD, used to induce a transcendental spiritual experience. I am a big fan of Ram Dass and had read all about his LSD experiments at Harvard with Timothy Leary in the 60s. LSD was successfully used in the late 1950s and early 60s to treat alcoholism, depression, and other trauma, but by the end of the decade, LSD had been moved to the area of unacceptable medicine. Fast forward to the present, and there has been a revival of study into the use of entheogens like ayahuasca and psilocybin in treating PTSD and depression. Can taking something like ayahuasca really bring me closer to the divine and seeing the face of God? Can I lose my fear of death? Tony Moss is an artist, songwriter, and plant teacher who has been studying entheogens for 19 years. I wanted to know how this ancient practice that has been used by South American shamans for hundreds of years could be used today. 
I'm here at the Parliament of World Religions talking to some fascinating people, and I stepped around from the Unity booth here, and I noticed uh, Tony Moss here at a booth that said Ayahuasca Spiritual Traditions. So I wanted to ask him about Ayahuasca and his work. So tell me a, a little bit about what you're doing here at Parliament. Well, for us, this is kind of historic because ayahuasca is an indigenous spiritual tradition. It's been around for at least, for sure, hundreds of years, documented. Uh, a lot of the indigenous people say thousands of years. And uh, so this is the first time it's actually being recognized at the Parliament of World uh, Religions as a spiritual tradition. So it's very significant in that sense to kind of have it be recognized as not something that is just popular amongst, you know, psychedelic trippers and, you know, the hippies from the 60s. It's like, no, it's a valid spiritual tradition. Yeah. Right. Not just people at Burning Man exactly. or, or something like that. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why I wanted to talk to you to kind of dispel some of the myths and misconceptions sure. of ayahuasca. And, and I've been reading, you know, a lot recently about the work and research that's being done with um, soldiers coming back with PTSD and depression. And could you talk a little bit about that, how ayahuasca is being used? It's been a, yeah, it's amazing to have Western language now validating indigenous concepts and uh, intentions for working with this medicine. So yes, what it's most popular for in the West is healing PTSD, depression, and anxiety. A whole host of things, but those are the major three that I think it's, uh, it's most attractive to Western people. And it has an incredible track record of healing them. Yeah. You know, and people ask, you know, how and why? Well, ayahuasca has this ability to, well, first of all, what we know about trauma, for instance, is that the only way to heal trauma is to go back to the original trauma in some way that you can actually make sense of it. And in the kind of repetitive cycle of fight and flight, you know, attached to it, you know, how, whatever symptoms play out. Ayahuasca has this ability to take you back to the trauma in a safe way that you can actually kind of revisit it. And literally, you're in this state of what we call neurogenesis. You can kind of rewire your neural pathways to how it responds to the trauma. So it's not that it's erased, we're no longer there. You're suddenly at peace with it as something that happened in the past, right? So it removes the charge on it that you have in the present. And it works similarly with... Um, anxiety and depression yeah and i've also heard that there's studies be studies being done for uh hospice patients and people that are you know facing death to accept that uh, in a in a much healthier and, and more spiritual way yeah and the main reason and way it does that is that it removes the fear right of death you know um particularly not so much all over the world obviously but particularly in the west as we all know uh death is a taboo subject it's not dealt with growing up and it's hidden right um so there's a lot of fear and anxiety around death um what the plant medicine traditions do in this case ayahuasca is that they bring you to death before you die which is what the buddhists and a lot of traditions are actually talking about it's like you know get that you're going to die now because then you can live a full life right ayahuasca can really take you into the death experience very similar to what a lot of people report that have had you know near-death experiences and you just lose a lot of the anxiety and fear around it you just get comfortable with the idea that although there's this great mystery around death that it's not something to fear that you can actually just relax into the process that it's a part of life uh, right, right. just a, a natural transition that we should accept rather than exactly. fight right. it should be something that we're we're taught how to how to deal with and, and how to it's welcome really just seen as another you know aspect of life you know there's, as far as we know, no one has lived on the planet and, you know, still around. Like, everybody at some point, part of the human experience is that you will face death. 
So in certain cultures, that is shrouded with a lot of fear and anxiety. Yeah, so what ayahuasca does mostly is that it brings you into a really comfortable relationship with the idea that death is a part of life and you can actually just relax into it when the time comes. So what brought you to this work and your interest in, in ayahuasca? How did you come to that? You know, I've talked to so many people over the years about what brings them to ayahuasca. Um, for me, it was, like a lot of people, a sincere curiosity and searching about whether or not there actually was a god or something other than what I see right around me. And uh, so when I finally got invited, I actually didn't know what ayahuasca was. A friend just said, hey, there's going to be an ayahuasca ceremony. And because I trusted him and I was just in a very open space, I said, yeah, I'll go. What I got from it was, I feel, what most people were spending their whole life seeking, which is just a direct, visceral connection with whatever you want to call it. God, divine, higher self, higher power. For me, that first experience was sitting there in the chair in this ceremony and realizing, like, it's all true. I don't know what part of it is true, but there is something bigger than me happening. I'm connected to that thing, and I have the ability to connect with whatever that is. All right, so for me, that was the initial draw. But that was 24 years ago, so it's been a long, uh, strange road. As <laughs> right, as, as they say, a long, strange trip it's been. Yeah. So for someone who's interested in maybe exploring this for their depression issues for themselves or a family member, I mean, where do you, where do you go to really get valid help and, and information? It's like the hot topic even at this conference, of course. Um, so ayahuasca is in what we call a gray area. The um, most active alkaloid, DMT, is a scheduled drug, meaning it's illegal. However, internationally, whatever this organization is, they acknowledge that ayahuasca itself, the tea, is not illegal and not harmful. So that basically means that every government, every state has the ability to regulate however they see fit. So it's in this really funky area depending on where you live. So in general, what I share with people is legally you have to go to South America, right? If you want the kind of authentic experience, then well, how do I find a good one? Because there's a lot of, you know, charlatans. It's true, there are. What I suggest is you just go on Google and write in credible ayahuasca retreat center. The thing is a lot of them will pop up and the good ones all list, uh, what do you call them, uh, antidotes? Yeah, there's lots of uh, recommendations from the people that have gone. You can be pretty sure that if there's a few dozen people talking about good experiences, that it's probably a credible center, right? Um, that's probably the best way if you're just completely ignorant and have no other connection, right? Um, in the United States, the only place you can legally work with ayahuasca is through one of the Santo Daime churches um, in Oregon or in California because they have exempt status. And there's now one in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. that's an ayahuasca church that uh, has just received uh, exempt status, meaning in the context of ritual ceremony that is legal and protected. Uh. So there is resources out there for people to explore and, and find out more. And do you have a website that people can go to? Yeah, just for people interested in just the world of ayahuasca and, and want recommendations on where to go in Peru, um, I, for that reason, I created a website, and it's just my name, TonyMoss.me. Yeah, easy to find. Very easy. Tony Moss, M-O-S-S -S dot me. And just um, real quick, can you tell me a little bit about some of the artwork that's around here? There's this beautiful, colorful artwork with animals and shapes and kind of tribal symbols and things like that. Now, is that your artwork? No. So what's come out of the, well, I would say, first of all, the psychedelic world in general is a genre of art called visionary art. Basically, it translates to um, art that is representations of the visions people receive 
while on their spiritual journeys, in this case with ayahuasca. So we're fortunate. All the paintings here are actually made by a Shipibo woman, Elena, who's with us. Yeah. She oh, okay. I think, she, I think she was behind me. So this, this is her work. Yeah, and on, on her visions, wow! I wish I, I wish you could see. Um, you, you won't be able to see because you'll hear you're hearing this on the radio. <laughs> but this is beautiful, uh, really powerful stuff, and that's what drew me into the tent. Yes. You know, to talk with you. Yeah. Um, and plus, I wanted to ask you some questions about ayahuasca. So, um, just one more question: Where do you see uh, things going in the next, you know, five years? Do you feel that uh, things are moving to get us more real solid research and what's going on, and that it'll be more available to people? Yeah, in general, we're in now what a lot of people are referring to as a psychedelic renaissance, justifiably so. Meaning, you know, no responsible person that's been involved in the world of entheogens or psychedelics is advocating legalization for casual use. That's a no-brainer. What we are advocating is a re-looking at the value, the medicinal value and psycho-spiritual value of things like peyote, you know, uh, San Pedro, ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms, you know, um, iboga, all of them have, it turns out, incredible medical uses in addition to their traditional use for psycho-spiritual work. So all of them are kind of starting to find their way into, you know, clinical research as being, you know, supported uh, relatively by governments and um, the FDA. So in the next five years, what we're looking for is a basically to get all of these substances off Schedule 1, you know, which simply means that we have to get the DEA or whatever equivalent body is in different countries to acknowledge that they have medicinal use. That's all that's necessary. It's like, yes, these have medicinal value, therefore they're no longer Scheduled 1, meaning they have no value and they're addictive. They're not addictive, proven time and time again. They do have medicinal use. And for us, just opening that up. Because eventually from that, yes, they're available now for psychospiritual use. What we know is that so many people, thousands of people, have healed themselves from things that Western medicine has not been able to heal. Therefore, why not have it be accessible? Right? And it should be accessible in a way that's not only affordable, but safe, meaning they don't have to go all the way to Peru and kind of meet up with some, like, hokey shaman, right? Yeah, they should be able to, like, go online and go, oh, that's a credible place. I'm going to try to deal with my addiction there. That's what we're seeing. And not only hoping, but it seems to be unfolding in the next five or six years. Yeah. Well, I hope that we're moving in, in the right direction. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom about ayahuasca with us and with the listeners today. Yeah, being one of the people that has had such a profound transformative experience on, for me personally, I'm always happy to give accurate information and kind of be a public like cheerleader and advocate for this work. Yeah, so thank you. This whole experience at the Parliament of World Religions has been a trip. I have learned so much in my time here, and I have a lot more hope for the future being around all of these people representing these different faith traditions. The same refrain has been said over and over, that we really are one, and we need to come together to promote peace on this planet. Thanks for joining me for this hour of the show. In the next part of this series, A Seeker's Guide to the Parliament of World Religions, I'll explore more spiritual traditions and talk with some interesting people. I hope you come back. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. As Unity Online Radio continues to expand its programming and outreach around the world, we depend on the generosity of listeners like you. 
If you enjoy the programming, please make your donation today by going to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment with Catherine Ponder, taken from a classic talk called The Prosperous Truth, recorded at Unity of Austin in 1991. God is extravagant supply. Get that, extravagant. God is extravagant supply. He brings forth the best robe. He spreads a banquet table, as we saw last night, with good things on which we may feast. He overflows our cup. He opens the windows of heaven and pours out a blessing. And then this is what that Unity Correspondence Course said. Why are you satisfied with such meager living when you may have so much? To find out more about Unity teachings, visit unity.org. Did you know you can reach Unity's 24-7 prayer ministry online? You don't even have to give your name to know the prayers have begun for you or those you love. Someone has been praying around the clock at Silent Unity since 1890, and every request is taken into prayer for 30 days. Why not let us pray with you, too? To submit your prayer request to Silent Unity online, go to unity.org and click on prayer, or call 816-969-2000. Here's a Unity Mindful Moment. Unity founder Charles Fillmore is quoted as saying, Here is a mental treatment guaranteed to cure every ill. Sit for half an hour every night and mentally forgive everyone against whom you have any ill will. The act of forgiveness is powerful medicine. Is there someone in your life that you can work on forgiving? Try this exercise tonight. To forgive is to set yourself free. Find out more about Unity at unity.org. Would you like to experience more peace and joy in your life through A Course in Miracles? Let Rev. Jennifer Hadley support you in discovering the powerful life lessons available through this unique spiritual thought system that teaches the way to love and peace is through forgiveness. Join Jennifer every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Central for A Course in Miracles, living the love, walking the talk, to experience the healing for yourself on Unity Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. I am so grateful that I had this opportunity to attend this event as a representative for Unity Online Radio with the Unity Delegation. Before I took the job as program director for Unity Online Radio, I was familiar with the Unity movement through my work at Hay House Publishing, but I really didn't know what Unity beliefs were. Not to be confused with Unitarian or Unitarian Universalism, Unity is considered a New Thought Christian organization that describes itself as practical spirituality. One of the main tenets is a belief that there is no separation between human beings and God. God is absolute good and present everywhere. Human beings have a spark of divinity within them, so our very essence is of God. 
I really love this idea of no separation and that I'm not a horrible sinner who has to look outside myself for forgiveness. Another thing that makes Unity unique is the Silent Unity Ministry. Praying with people for over 125 years, this 24-7 prayer ministry responds to prayer requests by phone, email, or via the YouPray app to pray with people of all faiths from all over the world. Reverend Linda Martella Witsit is the Vice President of Silent Unity, and I had a chance to talk with her at the Unity booth to find out more about her spiritual journey. And I'm at the Unity booth with Reverend Linda Martello Witsit, and I definitely wanted to talk to Linda because she is in charge of Silent Unity and has been involved with the Unity movement for a long time. So I just wanted to grab her and get a little bit of her story. So I'm really happy that you had a few minutes to talk to me. Thanks for joining me, Linda. Well, it's a it's a joy to be asked because um, I love Unity and I love being able to share our message. Well. I'm, I'm really happy to talk with you because I think you can give me uh, some background about unity and what it means to you and, and the unity message. So how long have you been a, a unity minister? Um, gosh, um, well, I started in unity in 1987. Um, and immediately I started taking classes. I was a youth ministry director for six years before studying to become a licensed unity teacher and eventually a minister. So a long time. <laughs> No, that's great. And so what originally attracted you to the unity message? Uh, I was raised in the Roman Catholic tradition, and I like to think that I graduated from Catholicism. I didn't feel like um, I needed to recover from it, you know what I mean, like so many people say. Um, but after that, I began studying um, New Age uh, and Edgar Casey, and it led me to a yoga practice. So from my yoga practice, I ended up living three years at an American ashram at Kripalu um, and deep dive into spirituality, into you know, spiritual personal growth. It set the tone for my adult life. I was in my early 20s at the time. And the only reason I left was because um, my husband to be found me again after we had been separated for years and asked me to marry him. And so I left the ashram to go join him. So a few years later, our children, you know, well, nine years later, um, I had a healing with my father. He had disowned me when my husband and I married. Um, and we had uh, a healing of hearts, you know, nine years later. And my kids were little at that time. It set me um, with a new intention to find spiritual community again. I had really missed it. Uh, because of my dual, my East and West background, I wanted something that would be a wonderful bridge. And uh, a yoga teacher friend of mine had sent me a daily word subscription when I was living at the ashram. So I found that, and I called a local Unity Church in Omaha, Nebraska, where we were living, and I started going. And I felt like so many people feel when they first step into a Unity community. I just cried in the feeling of coming home, you know, coming home to the understanding of that power that is within me that always has been, uh, the divine love that is, you know. That's a, that's such a beautiful story, and I love that you kind of came through learning about uh, different traditions and then found that unity was the home for you. And what do you think makes unity different, that it's able to kind of bring people in from, from these different traditions and then, and then they feel comfortable? 
Well, initially, I, I think for many people, it's because there's Christian languaging around it that a lot of people who, who are expanding beyond sort of the credo or the theology that they were raised with in a Christian tradition still find some familiarity, but they find um, the God of love rather than a God of judgment and shame and the things that so many people sort of feel like they experience sometimes in their in their youth growing up in in religious community you know so um that message the message that there's only one power that power is god and the quality of that god is goodness and that goodness is inherent in each one of us and so our nature is good it's not evil it's not sinful i mean that's a remarkable message for someone who didn't hear that when they were growing up, but to, to feel like, to know it when you hear it, to know that there's an anchoring of absolute truth to that in our hearts. Like we say yes to that. And so I think that's what draws people. That message of the divine being within us, that we're pieces of the divine, letting go of that um, message of I'm the sinner, I'm bad, I'm guilty, I need to ask for someone to bestow that you know forgiveness and salvation upon me. Letting go of that, I've found, is a very difficult task for some people. So what, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's because the rise of Christianity, especially in the West, has really created this state of separation. I don't believe that's inherent in the Christian scriptures or in, you know, in the world scriptures. I mean, that message of, you know, that self that you're looking for, that self with a capital S, it's within you. That God is within you. The, the Buddha, everyone has the Buddha nature. That's the Buddhist teaching, you know, and in Christianity, that I am the way and the truth and the life. And that I am is not Jesus, Jesus, the human being. It's the Christ, the nature, the, the innate divine nature uh, that Jesus claimed that allowed him to say that and teaches us to, to be able to do that. The message of the, the sort of evangelical message that has taught us to to feel ourselves as less than and, and sinful and, you know, irredeemable, really, that only by, you know, by, the, by Jesus Christ or by whatever you say is the Savior um, um, could you be redeemed. And what I say to that or what I've learned from that uh, is that that in our discipline of unity, it is the awakening to the truth of my divine nature that allows me to change my world, to change my worldview for, for sure, and then to change the way I interact with the world and with my own circumstances such that I can be a blessing rather than, you know, perpetuate the hardship and the, the sort of the victim consciousness and all that other stuff. So it's really... To me, and this was Myrtle taught us, Myrtle Fillmore taught us to claim the capacities that are within us. This is why I write about the 12 powers. This is why my book, Divine Audacity, just sort of teaches about all the different ways that we could relate to that divine nature and name it, name it this quality, and then begin to have an inner realization of that quality such that it out pictures in the way we think, in the words we speak, and in the way we live our life. And that's really what Myrtle did. When she healed, she caught the power of life in her body and started championing that life. When we say we're divine, that's what we mean. It doesn't mean that we could, that we're the hubris of saying, well, I am God. You know, but it is saying any aspect of God, I can be that. 
So I don't see it in pieces and parts like Kentucky Fried Chicken. I don't think of it that way. But I do say that all of divine love is right where I am. And in this moment when I when I align in love and when I realize the love that is within me, like the love that could be harmony, expressed as harmony, then I now can live in harmony. My thoughts can harmonize. My actions can bring harmony between me and my neighbor. And that's, that's being God in that moment. It's being the Christ of that moment where it's needed. And it's the message we can give in prayer with others. Right, so for silent unity, to give this re re um, reassuring message. Now, I do want to explain to people that uh, maybe new to the unity message or new listeners to Unity Online Radio, what exactly silent unity is. Well, there's a couple of components to what we do in silent unity. First of all, silent unity has been operational for over 128 years, and throughout those 128 years, prayer has been continuous in silent unity, and what that means is that there is a literally a person sitting in silence in our prayer vigil chapel round the clock and they take half hour shifts and that shift is never broken so that the person who's coming in on the half an hour enters the chapel, takes their seat in that chapel before the person who's been sitting there stands to leave. So there's an unbroken prayer consciousness happening. The walls, in fact there's cabinets inside the walls of the Silent Unity Prayer Vigil Chapel that contain literally the written prayer requests that are mailed to us or that are printed out from uh, online prayer requests and even on CDs because when we pray with people over the telephone, their names get recorded onto this CD and every 24 hours that a CD from the previous 24 hours is placed in there. So around the clock we are praying with more than a quarter million prayer names at any one time. And those prayer lists stay there for 30 days before we switch them out. Um, so that now that happens in addition to the actual prayer calls that we do. So Silent Unity operates 24-7, which means that we have um, a team of prayer associates sitting in the prayer room, and there's some that sit remotely from their homes, but they're connected to us in every way through their work. And and uh, callers can call anytime, day or night, and we will uh, a prayer associate will pray personally with you, and then we'll follow that up with a letter or an email, uh, just reinforcing that prayer message. And your name will enter the prayer vigil chapel, where we'll continue to pray for 30 days. It's unlike uh, anything that you could find in any other uh, religious discipline. And what's different about this than, say, if you called uh, uh, another prayer line of, of another group or tradition, is that you're not proselytizing or trying to convince anybody of anything. You're simply there that I'm, I'm here to pray with you and, and that's it. Is that right? Yes, we answer the telephone uh, as a collective voice. So we we don't where nobody is um, nobody identifies themselves. We are silent unity. So we answer the call, silent unity. How may we pray with you? And that's really our whole intent is just to pray with you. We do, we don't ask you what religion you're from. We don't ask you um, if you're a unity person or not. We don't we don't ask because we it's not it's not our business. We're not trying to um, to get converts or anything like that. And people sometimes self-identify, and it just helps us to be able to use uh, a broader language if someone says they're an atheist, because actually atheists do call us for prayer support, which I love. I love that 
we can support everyone. Thank you so much for talking with me today. You're welcome. This was a joy, and I'm so grateful that we had a chance to meet. And uh, listeners, you know, find Silent Unity and uh, and let us support you. We, we, we love our work, and we, we love to spread the message of oneness. In the book The Red Tent by Anita Diamond, we're introduced to the biblical character of Dina and her life in ancient Israel and Egypt. The story follows Dina from youth through adulthood, and in the story, she shares the significance of the red tent, where only women are allowed and where they stay during their time of menstruation and childbirth. In the red tent, women keep alive the old traditions of goddess worship, and girls are instructed in the ways of being a woman in the world. The book was a bestseller and spawned a movement of the red tent, being a safe space for women to share their stories and experiences. There are now thousands of women raising red tents in their cities and communities all over the world. The red tent can be a real tent or even a red cloth on the floor, but the point is for women to come together in community and support one another. Elisa Starkweather is the founder of many powerful women's initiatives and has spent over 35 years dedicated to women's empowerment. At this year's parliament, Elisa erected a beautiful red tent and I was drawn to go in and check out the beautiful colors and the cushions. It looked like the inside of Jeannie's bottle from that old TV show, I Dream of Jeannie. In the tent, women were coming together and sharing personal stories, supporting each other and just being together. The energy in the tent was incredible, and I found myself going back several times throughout the week. I got a chance to talk to Elisa about her work and the power of the red tent. So tell me a little bit about what is the Red Tent, the Red Tent Movement, and how long have you been involved in this kind of work? Mm. Well, I've been involved uh, working with women and girls for most of my adult life. That's 35 years. And the uh, here at the Parliament, it's a little different um, than it might be in the world at large. Here we're holding the women's sacred space. And as it rises here, it is a red tent for sure. And um, in 2000, well, actually, some years ago, uh, there was a large gathering called Women in Power, and at the ABC Carpet Place sponsored a red tent to go up, and it was fashioned after the um, the idea from Anita Diamond's book, The Red Tent, that many people had read, and uh, we began to notice uh, that there were many red tents going uh, up and down throughout the world um, of women inspired by that book, and so in 2006, I asked uh, Anita, by writing her an email, if I could start a grassroots movement that could support women in their journeys by creating an archetypal womb-like space for them to be in from the basis of um, her book, which was uh, written as a novel, and also from her, even though there's some historical pieces in it for her, uh, she said this was from her her place of her imagination. And so I'm sure because of legalities and since she did not know me, all she could really write back was that she honored, um, she, that she blessed my empowerment work with women. And that that's all was spoken about that. <laughs> and uh, so I thought that was a green light. <laughs> I took that as a green light to keep going. And um, at that point, I thought it would be really great if women knew that um, 
that they belonged to something that was growing together. So rather than just saying a red tent, I chose the words red tent temple to also signify a women's sacred space, also honoring our bodies, and so that people could recognize when it was coming out of that movement. And I didn't call it then the red tent movement, although that's exactly what was happening. And over the years, as this got up and going, which was to have a red tent in your community, the, the idea was to, to create a red tent in every village, city, and town that could go up at least once a month where we could share soup or tea or share circles to mentor our young, to tell stories in multi-age groups, inviting our elders, even women who have never bled, women who don't even have wombs, to be able to come into the tent and be welcomed. And so we learned a lot in doing that. And the Red Tent as a movement, because it was grassroots, it began to also split out in lots of different places. And so different people have different ways of holding what is there. Some people only allow women to come in. In the Red Tent Temple movement, we allow for inclusivity to be there. Uh, some people charge money for their tents. We're in the Red Tent Temple movement. It, money sometimes is raised, of course, for those who choose in their communities uh, through loving donations or through what will sustain the red tent, but it's not a financial endeavor for women. It's more of, of how do we support one another. And um, for about 10 years straight, every month, I would also help women around the world. And I think the first call was maybe we had six, well, not like maybe four countries uh, from maybe 50 women on the first phone call of just how to how to do it you know like what was going to happen around that and we have learned a lot about that because there are things to learn inside the red tent which I'm happy to talk about more about um and then also in towards 2012 uh Dr. Isadora Leidenfrost made a full-length film called Things We Don't Talk About, stories, um, women's stories from the red tent. And that's been seen over a million times and created lots of red tents. She screened it, I think, oh my gosh, probably at least a thousand times she screened that movie. And so um, a lot of women just began to have lots of great conversations and lifting that up wherever they could. So really your wish would be that there could be a red tent in every city, every town, every country, all around the world as an empowering space for women to come together and support each other in really any number of, of issues, whether it's domestic violence or supporting women with addictions, just really supporting women. And just what I noticed is someone is totally new to the movement, not knowing anything about it, that the space really there's a, a powerful energy that's there. I mean, women, total strangers, were really sharing very personal parts of themselves, and there's tears that are shed, and we're able to all come together kind of on a, on a level playing field. And is that really your, your goal, to have those spaces everywhere for women to come in and just whatever whatever comes of the energy in the tent is whatever happens? Like, there's no specific agenda for for what happens in the tent or the messages that are shared. Is that right? Well, you're talking to somebody after doing 35 years of women's work and also being here at the parliament and in the environments that we're in is that I don't wish that, you know, maybe when I was younger, I had a passion for something to become so. But now 
it's whatever is going to help support us in whatever ways support us. So things are going to morph, they will transform, they will change, they will become what we need to happen. Right now in the red tent, there is a lot of um, of, of need, to, uh, particularly um, as as we enter a time where transgender rights are being fought over and needing to be understood um, as places where um, uh, the Me Too movement and very uh, human trauma and the level of where we need that support, um, people needing to have skills to be able to handle what comes into the tent when it is a lot of trauma through stories that we've we've held so it's you know there's learnings here and then there's also uh, racial justice and restorative justice there are even though I chose to to think about the red tent as a way a grassroots movement could happen where it would come from a novel or imaginatory space that would then not be culturally appropriated in truth, because women's sacred spaces have been here through and held uh, and with some traditions um, for forever and other traditions, it's been lost. There still was a feeling that there was cultural appropriation because there are places in the world that they have uh, moon huts and lodges and uh, First Nations people have held lodges forever. Uh, so, so I think the question is, how can we in our communities and our local communities continue to do the work at hand to support um, what it means to come together in humanity and if we're not doing a deeper layer of work then anywhere that we create will continue to exasperate um, and to continue to harm if we don't do the deeper work around what is needed when we do come together so I don't have the assumption that uh, especially in just speaking as a white woman that the red tent ought to be everywhere now I think more um, what can we do that um, that we can come together? And uh, you can see at the Parliament, it's such a beautiful experience because everyone from every tradition and all uh, sorts of, of people are coming in the tent and they're finding what is purposeful and meaningful to them. Rich and deep conversations are occurring. Uh, certainly you're hearing uh, discussions around transgender rights and also racial uh, conversations, racial justice conversations, uh, people in decolonization mindset, dismantling, and you, the, the feeling is one of um, of support with one another for for the deep work at hand. I love the red tent movement because it can happen simply. It can happen in your living room, your home, uh, where you are by putting even a red cloth out and saying, okay, we're entering, and be able to, I mean, the movie itself was called Things We Don't Talk About, so it's like, you know, what, what is it that we need to be talking about, but more than talking about taking action. So here's a place where if it's there in a community, I bring up the Yellow Springs, Ohio community. They've been, uh, they were in action for a very long time, and I saw how it just rippled out and created so much uh, for everyone in the community itself that was way beyond the red tent. And that's really the purpose. Where are women's spaces that by coming together and being together and doing what we need to do, that it ripples out and creates um, a, a, a better a better place to be able to yeah come together and do what we need to be doing right now when we're on the precipice of so much. 
I think becoming ourselves is to be able to say when we are uh, when we are ourselves learning, uh, when we don't have the answers, when we can be be humbled and we can be transparent, when we make a mistake to to not be held by the role that we're in that you know people are holding us up so therefore that when we fall we're still trying to say we're doing something that we're not doing, you know I could like if I'm I'm using my power in a way or my leadership in a way that is harmful, you know to be able to be called out in that to be able to, uh, and so I think maybe the real longing is is I'm a I'm a new grandmother of a, uh, I have a little little baby grandson now, um, and I think that there is a desire for those who have been, uh, I don't know, maybe being able to have a container, you know, like not not surprised by things so much, but really able to hold and able to grow and learn, uh, and able to to be in the not knowing. You know, like that—that's a place all in of itself to 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 learn how to. And the red tent shows us that. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's not do I enjoy being the, in the role. I really appreciate the place where I can be present with humanity, and that they can be present with me. And that once we know and we're in that place, uh, there's something deep and profound that can happen there. Thank you so much, Elisa Starkweather, for sharing your vision and your journey with us here at the Parliament of World Religions. I appreciate it. I've really enjoyed sharing my experience at the Parliament of World Religions. I want to thank Unity CEO Jim Blake and Reverend Ellen Devonport for making it all possible. I know it's been said a lot, but this experience made me realize we really are one. Thanks for joining me on this journey. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. I'm Dr. Mona Lisa, and I've been a medical intuitive for over 30 years. Let me help you find new ways to heal physical and emotional problems. Be a part of my Healthy Living Intuitively podcast studio audience every week. Follow me on Facebook, Dr. Mona Lisa fan page, and Instagram, Dr. Mona Lisa One, to get that information. I answer audience questions, and you can learn from people calling in that might be dealing with the same things that you are. Follow Healthy Living Intuitively part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts.